This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Let's get on to today's big debate. It centres around a man who has had many column inches written about him, much speculation in the media. He is a polarising figure in the extreme. In the last couple of years, it seems like his story has only grown more and more polarising, actually. Yeah. Uh, weirdly, as his form and his significance when it comes to Arsenal has dwindled, the amount of interest in him seems to have continued to go up. And a lot of it, I think, I feel people get hung up about money um, and they get hung up about wages. And I think the, um, the salary that Mesut Ozil's agent was able to negotiate is, is often a stick with which to beat him. And it's not his but fault. It's the club. It's the club um, chose. The club chose to, to, pay to him offer that. him that much money. But I want to get to his statement, which is, he's come out today. The news being Mesut Ozil has been left out of Arsenal's, both their Europa League squad and their Premier League squad. It's basically the club saying, we don't You're want done. you anymore. You're done at this club. It's, it's Mikel Arteta's way of saying you are surplus to requirements. And given the fact that he has the highest wage bill at the club, it's attracted an awful lot of media attention. Now, he has come out to say today, he said, it's a difficult message to write to Arsenal fans that I've played for over the past few years. I'm really deeply disappointed by the fact that I've not been registered for the Premier League season for the time being, he says. Upon signing my new contract in 2018, I pledged my loyalty and allegiance to the club that I love, Arsenal and it saddens me that this has not been reciprocated. As I have just found out, loyalty is hard to come by nowadays. I've always tried to remain positive from week to week that there may be a chance to get back in the squad again. That's why I kept silent so far. He goes on to say, I will continue to train as best as I can and wherever possible, use my voice against inhumanity and for justice. He's attracted a lot of attention for some of the things that he's said that have a political leaning, that have a humanitarian leaning, that have a social justice leaning as well. And, um, and obviously that has upset some people. Mm-hmm. It has brought, rallied more people around him. But the, the, the fact of the matter is... Mesut Ozil has not been a significant player for Arsenal now for well over two years. And you just look at the stats as well. When you go back to the 2018-19 Premier League season, given the fact that this is a guy who used to at least hit double-figure assists consistently for when he joined Arsenal in 2013 all the way through to sort of 2016-2017 when his form started to tail off. And I remember when he signed that new contract in 2018, a lot of Arsenal fans and a lot of journalists and a lot of commentators at the time said, this is crazy. It's desperation. Why are they giving him a new contract? It was desperation. And I've had a long conversations. Matthew Fortune, of course, a former employee of the club, a lifelong Arsenal fan, and he sums that up best. It was desperation. A club that needed to save face. Alexis Sanchez had agitated. He had gone. He was wanting out. If they had let Mesut Ozil run down his contract and go as well, can you imagine what that would have done? So they the decided to give him £350,000 yeah. a week contract. And if you look at the last three years, I mean, the last three seasons, if you like, he scored five goals in 24 appearances in the 2018-19 season. Last season, he was peripheral. He was ineffectual. He scored one goal. I think he scored, I think he made, uh, sorry, uh, a couple of assists in 18 appearances, which for a number 10, it's not for, a, for a playmaker, if you're going to rely on Mesut Ozil, when he is in a game and he looks, forget his persona, his on-pitch persona, which I know is 
a, what a, what sort of irks a lot of fans of Arsenal. He's languid. He's Berbatov-esque in the sense yeah. that he gives off the vibe that he doesn't care. He's got a, a languid running style, just a languid way of playing the game. But again, and I thought Mikel would unlock that. Uh, and listen, I'm a huge, you know it, Rob, I'm a huge Mikel Arteta fan. I can't help but think, though, really, is there no place for Meza Ozil in this new Arsenal side? Clearly he feels not, but I can't help but think, whew, you know, with Mikel and what he's doing there, surely Meza is is a quality that they don't have in that final third. You look at what he did, and I know we're going back a few years now, that what he did in transition with that Real Madrid side, you know, Jose Mourinho made him a real fulcrum of that team. Arsene Wenger went out and spent big money. Arsenal fans were cock-a-hoop. Arsenal fans were celebrating outside Emirates Stadium when they got the Mesut Ozil, uh, Ozil deal done. I think it was on deadline day, eight years ago now. And... Listen, he's going to take responsibility for his own performances. You know, Rob, I've always said Unai Emery was never the man for that job. He was a victim in a lot of ways of what Unai, Unai tried to do. He started all 10 of Mikel Arteta's first games in charge, and clearly that was enough for Mikel to, to look at Meza and say, not for me. I wonder if there's politics involved in this, higher up the food chain at that football club. I think we, also, we spoke to him. We spoke to Meza. Yeah. He was lovely. He didn't, in well, was, Sports he was a nice Club enough works. guy, yeah. Lovely guy. Gave us time. Maybe he was maybe he was playing a game then. He was very open. He said, "Yeah, I want to stay. I'm I'm enjoying my football again. I've enjoyed the training. There's more structure. Remember, he said you, there's more cohesion. Do you not think it's also down to the fact that Mikel Arteta is trying to retool Arsenal as a tougher team? Uh, he, he's trying to almost redesign their image that they are not pushovers. Mesut Ozil very much personified this idea that Arsenal were lightweight." that they were not up for a scrap on a tough day when things weren't going their way. I know, I know you can roll out all the cliches that you want about football, but the idea was that Arsenal were just a little bit... If, 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 if the sort of passing patterns that they liked to weave weren't working on a given day, if they were having trouble against I a certain he, opponent... I think he was an easy target, just, Rob. Yeah, and, exactly. And Arsenal fans hid behind him as well. I think it was too easy for Martin Keown to, to jump onto talk sport or BT Sport, or whatever platform he used, to say we can start picking holes in Mesut Ozil. Again, Mesut Ozil, in a lot of ways, I would call it the Marouane Fellaini effect. Mesut Ozil is used to beat the culture. He is the, he's become the poster boy of a club that was stale and was going nowhere. Marouane Fellaini was exactly the same at Man United in a lot of ways. Unfairly at times, you know, Marouane, bless him, he represented the Moyes era. You know, you, you look at how his time at that football club ended, maybe didn't get the appreciation that in some performances deserved. And I just feel that Mesut has been a victim of an Arsenal. So why didn't Arsenal cut their losses? Because, well, okay, they're not the going to sell him for a particularly big transfer fee, but at least get that £350,000 wage bill off your books I think he's digging his heels in as well, from, from what I gather. Mesut wants control over where he goes next. And, you know, Arsenal just accepting any bid from, from anyone. And well, that's right where now. I lose sympathy. Because at that point, you know, they needed to have an honest conversation before this season to say, look, you're not part of our plans. Surely that conversation was had at some level. I would level. like to think. I mean, because judging, why, after four games of a new Premier League season, is he suddenly well, now jettisoned? Could it, could it be, as Rashid's pointing out, that Arsenal are a little peeved that he hasn't danced to their tune, shall we say, and this is punishment for that? End of the day, Arsenal gave him the contract. The power's with the player. They chose in 2018 to pay him £350,000 per week and he's got a contract, so, so live with it. 
Arsenal Football Club and, and this is the punishment for it. We saw it with Gareth Bale, didn't we? He was jettisoned at Real Madrid on a huge contract. He enjoyed his golf. I'm not quite sure Mesut has the same uh, uh, kind of uh, affection for golf, but it is a sad situation. He's clearly upset about it all. He's taken to Instagram. That won't help him. That won't endear him to the powers that be in Arsenal. And I'd love to be in a fly on the wall at their training ground tomorrow morning because does he train with the first team? I don't know. That would be a question to ask Mesut. Does he train away from them? Is he training with well, the Well, if he's 23s? not in the squad, presumably he won't. Well, he's not in the squad. He can't suit up, essentially, on match days, but he could still be, he could still be training with the first-team squad. Just bizarre. Bizarre thing. to think. The a whole guy thing. Who's I can't recall. Earning more than any other player in that squad, and he's yeah. not in the squad. I mean, uh, and again, I'll put it that out there. That must be unprecedented. There's a lot of people that love their football out there in 4 one Exactly that. I cannot think, truly, Rob, the last time the top wage earner at a football club was essentially told you can't play for this football club. Normally it ends up with you're being sold or you're being loaned out. First time in my memory that the top earner is in, in effect sidelined. Yeah, you've got to say both parties are at least to some extent to blame for it. This is Off Script Extra Time with Chris and Robbie on Dubai Eye 103.8. Join the conversation. We've got an exclusive interview with Sunrise's Hyderabad captain, David Warner, coming your way over the course of the next 15 minutes or so. We'll get into the cricket. There's actually a heck of a score unfolding over in Abu Dhabi, There Chris. certainly is. Kolkata Knight Riders taking on Royal Challengers Bangalore this evening, as you say, down in the nation's capital. And well, Royal Challengers Bangalore, who have had their struggles in this particular tournament, over the last couple of seasons, making hay somewhat this year. Kolkata Knight Riders currently toiling 62 for 7 after 16.1 overs. I've checked the history books. I can tell you Royal Challengers Bangalore's lowest ever total of 49. It is safe, so they're not going to uh, at least skittle Kolkata, uh, Kolkata Knight Riders out for lower than that. But they're heading potentially right now for a top 3, top 4, top 5 lowest ever. 62 for 7, Rob. 16.1 overs. They're having a mayor. Kolkata Knight Riders, the team that beat Sunrisers Hyderabad in that super over. We're going to get to David Warner and his thoughts now because a lot of the guys, well, they've been living in this biosecure bubble and a lot of the Aussie players, they love their golf. Yeah, they do. Uh, not just the Aussies as well, various other guys, Johnny Bairstow, namely, and uh, our good friend Darren King, who is the senior manager of Emar Golf down at Dubai Hills Golf Club and across, of course, the Arabian Ranches and the Montgomery Golf Club as well. Darren has been working tirelessly to get these cricketers onto the Dubai Hills Golf Club and they have been absolutely loving it. It's an incredible respite. The weather's perfect. Yeah. The course is looking beautiful. I've just put my entry in for the Dubai Hills Golf Club <laughs> Men's Open, Chris. I am so not good enough for that I yet. I am going to be taking that off the back tees, that particular challenge. And Darren very kindly managed to hook us up remotely with David Warner a little earlier today. Now, David had played the golf club. Uh, he's loving it. He's a very good player by all accounts. I did get a chance to ask him what his handicap was. But it's just been, I suppose, for him, a chance to to get out and actually just clear the mind from that bubble, that relentless pressure, Owen Morgan has alluded to it, Chris, of living in this biosecure bubble. So big thanks to the guys, Darren and all the team down at Dubai Hills Golf Club for sorting this one out. We're hoping as well, fingers crossed, to bring you an interview with Ricky Ponting, the legend, the, the Australian cricket legend, former captain of Australia and now coach tomorrow. But this is all about David Warner. We tracked him down. He kindly agreed to chat to us remotely for a few minutes. And as we mentioned, golf 
It's kept me sane over these past couple of months. I know it's played its role in it's your life as well. And it's helped Warner's R&R too. First things first, had to ask David, how's the handicap? Yeah, look, uh, a lot of people say that I'm burgling. Um, my current uh, GA handicap in Australia is 11.5. Unable to play in comps, so... We've got obviously an app that we use uh, while we're away and uh, currently stand off eight. You know, we've been fortunate enough to be out at Dubai Hills Golf Course and uh, fantastic establishment and uh, the BCCI have allowed us to come out and uh, with strict protocols to come out here and uh, play play the game that we enjoy away from cricket and uh, it's great to get out of the hotel and, um, yeah, just... Uh, do something to get your mind away from um, being in that bubble life. Now, I have it on good authority from various onlookers who were onlooking from a distance, it's fair to say, yeah. that David is not an eight handicapper. <laughs> he is much, much better than that. I've seen Instagram videos of his swing. He looks like he's off about scratch. So clearly... He's a bandit. He's a complete bandit. But uh, we wouldn't say that to his face. <laughs> um, now, Owen Morgan, uh, England one-day captain, he's made some pointed remarks. He made them yesterday about the mental health issues that many of these players are facing in the biosecure bubbles. David's wife, uh, actually, Candice, is actually taking part in a game show as things uh, stand, with the SAS. He's been posting about that oh, yeah, on Instagram. Yeah. And, of course, he's away from his family. They all are. Um, and, you know, you obviously have that to deal with. It's, it's not just the pressure of competing. And, uh, well, how had David found uh, cricket and playing cricket once it saw, since it had resumed from behind closed doors? Take a listen. When I look back at uh, the beginning of the year when we first played New Zealand with no crowd, it was very surreal, very bizarre. Uh, obviously no atmosphere, the unknown of what this pandemic uh, was going to, you know, sort of um, produce. And uh, it's been devastating worldwide. You know, obviously we're challenged by um, a lot of other things uh, about moving around, trying to play the game that we love. And it's obviously a very expensive exercise when you private charters and uh, going to different places around the world to, um, to play the game of cricket that we love. But we're fortunate enough to have great things in place and um, obviously the, the right people are making the right decisions and obviously speaking to government, getting a, approval. And um, that's, uh, that's something that we're um, forever grateful for. Bit of a diplomatic answer there from David little, but I mean, you know he's aware that a lot of effort is going on behind the scenes to make this and to make this happen of course I mean it's money makes the world go round Rob right and there are a lot of people involved in this because you know sport is a release we, we've said it time and time again I know and I make no apologies for saying this before I would have apologised because there are far more important things to an awful lot of people than sport but you know my mood was affected when it was off because it is a release it is something as I say, I make no apologies for saying this. It is a major component of my life. And therefore, when it's back and it's on the television screens, OK, it's not what I want. I want to see fans back in there. I believe they play a fundamental part in the sporting spectacle, if you will. But whew, without it, I did struggle. Yeah. Uh, well, Warner himself, he did admit that it was tough not playing cricket. He's just grateful to be back playing. And I know you love a stat, Chris. I love a stat. He's one of the most successful batsmen in IPL history. We all know that. He's actually won the orange cap three times, David Warner. He scored over 5,000 runs. And he is actually fifth on the all-time batting list behind four Indian players, which makes him the most successful foreign import in terms of all-time batting in IPL history. Now, he's behind Virat Kohli, who's leading the way, Suresh Rayner, Rohit Sharma and Shikhar Darwin. However, Warner has played far fewer innings than all of those five. In fact, 
For an example, a comparison, Warner has played 135 innings for his 5,037 runs. Virat Kohli played 178 for his 5,759. And David Warner's average of 43.05 is the highest from among the top 10. I put it. it to him that this record must be a source of great pride. And he was actually very self-deprecating with his answer. It's obviously a, a, a proud thing for myself, but um, at the end of the day, it, it, uh, it's rewarding because it's, uh, it's showing me that I'm actually doing the job for the team, um, which obviously the, uh, the purpose of this game is to, to get as many runs as you can and get the team off to a, a great start. But, uh, you know, for me, I have to uh, obviously applaud um, and I'm grateful for that we have a great produced wicket uh, in Hyderabad as well. Our groundskeeper, curator, is a very, very good one and always prepares uh, good cricket wickets. And uh, that's the challenge when you're playing around um, the subcontinent is uh, each wicket's different. Now, we heard his self-deprecating answer to that individual batting record that he holds. Sanjay's making the point that, or he's saying that Warner averages above because he bats in a team that depends on him firing, similar to Kale Rahul. There's a responsibility to his batting that you don't see with the other Indian Is players. Is that a positive? I'm not quite sure if that's a negative and that's kind of diluting the fact that Warner has a higher average because he needs to fire. Because I look at it the other way. What you're saying there, in other words, Sanjay, is that there's a lot more pressure on David Warner to perform. Therefore, his average, which is better than anyone in the top 10, 40, just over 43, to give him his dues... That mm. makes it even more impressive. Yeah. If there is a responsibility on you going out there and actually getting the job done and you do it more often than not, more power to you. Yeah, absolutely. And 43.05 in T20 is very, very impressive. Uh, let's get on to the mental side of the game because following that super over loss to Kokota Knight Riders, Sunrisers had to then to dust themselves down, pick themselves up, and they've got a must-win match tomorrow against the Rajasthan Royals. Was it, I asked him, difficult to maintain a kind of mental equilibrium yeah. with all these matches coming thick and fast? It's a good point that you make. It's... Uh... It's one that you have to try and learn to compartmentalise, you know, going away from the game and, and not sort of debriefing too much and getting to the nitty-gritty of things and just going out there and playing a, a free-flowing, calm-minded uh, uh, game. And it's it's easy to say it, but it's hard to actually deliver sometimes. So there's obviously going to be a little bit of pressure on us, three three losses, but uh, it's about trying to manufacture some, some great team harmony and going out there and uh, executing our skill in the day. Yeah, they've got five games to go, have the Sunrisers. It's fair to say they've got to win every single one of them. Currently, they are second from bottom mm. in the table. They do have a game in hand. That's tomorrow's game against the Rajasthan Royals. But every single game now is must win for the Sunrisers Hyderabad if they want to make it into the playoffs. Now, Australia and England, they recently played a hard-fought one-day series against one another over in the UK at Old Trafford. And now, David Warner and Johnny Bairstow Two kind of who's on buddies. Two, two sort of rambunctious characters. <laughs> they are spearheading the Sunrisers batting attack. How was David's relationship with Johnny, both as an international rival and as a teammate? I love um, you know being being at the top of the order with Johnny. I think we've got the, the, the same mindset when it comes to um, playing the game. Obviously, we both like to get on with it, but uh, the crucial thing and the most important thing is about running between wickets and. Uh, you know, it obviously puts a bit of pressure on the opposition when, when the field is going to be on the ring uh, in the first six, knowing that we're obviously going to come hard. But you can also pinch uh, the odd single here and there and pinch the odd two out in the outfield. So we know each other's game very well. And um, at the moment, uh, you know, we're trying to regain that f- um, partnership form from last year that we produced some, some great partnerships and uh, we're slowly getting there. Uh, and hopefully we can produce that the next couple of games. Now, David himself, he did make a score, I think, of 47 
in that match that went to a super over. Johnny Bairstow hits 36 in that match against Kolkata Knight Riders. It was to no avail. They did lose the super over. David Warner, in fact, lost his wicket to Lockie Ferguson in that super over. But, uh, yeah, two very explosive batsmen oh, when they're at, at the it. top there. Absolutely. I mean, Johnny Bairstow now uh, kind of out in the cold when it comes to England's test team. Still remains a vital cog of England's ODI team. And I know he has been at pains to point out in recent weeks that he still harbours ambitions of, of getting back into the England test setup. But on his day, Johnny, heck of a player. You know, we or I use the word belligerent when it comes to T20, and he is yeah. one of those guys when he fancies it and his eye is in. Then, like so many of these guys at T20 levels at the top of the batting order, they can take games away from teams. Unfortunately for Johnny and to an extent David, certainly this year they haven't done it enough. And when he, and when teams have got beyond them, ultimately Sunrisers Hyderabad have kind of gone awry a little bit. I did want to get David's views on how T20 has affected other forms of the game of cricket. He was actually a bit of a trailblazer because he actually broke through into international cricket through T20. He did not play first-class cricket. I think he was the first to do so. So he really was really a poster boy for T20, was David Warner. And it's obviously led to um, being very successful in other forms of the game as well. Now... Did the T20 aspect and did that style of batting have a big influence on his test cricket batting? I don't think it has. Early days, I probably just went out there and played you know, free-flowing cricket. But at the end of the day, as you get older, you get a bit more wiser and you learn how to play the game and how to bat long periods of time. And I probably only worked that out last year when I scored 300. Um, everyone thought that I'd be able to do that early on in my career. But you can't sustain going out there and playing shots um, all the time. And you have to obviously have that mental capacity to be out there. And, uh, you know, one guy that I look up to and is obviously a teammate of mine is the way that Steve Smith approaches his game. Mentally strong, um, you know, he's an awesome character. And the way he plays, he just has so much onus on his wicket and doesn't, doesn't want anyone to get him out. So, you know, he's a guy that we look up to in the team and, uh, you know, try and aspire to, to bat like when we're out in the middle. I remember that Ashes series. It was almost impossible to get Steve Smith out. Unbelievable. I mean, I've said it before, Rob, and I'll say it again. One of the... When we talk about, and I know Ben Stokes gets the plaudits for his headingly performance, but Steve Smith across oh. the board, the consistency of that man. And you know, there would he be missed, those. He missed, he, was it the third or the fourth test that Steve Smith missed? Third. He missed one I of think. them. And he would have had a chance to beat Don Bradman's oh. test. You couldn't get him out. Ashes record. Rob, you could not get him out. He was the immovable object. And, and I remember there's a lot of work done, Nasser Hussein et al., that were looking at his, not, let's say, textbook style, but doesn't matter. It works for Steve Smith. It's the Steve Smith style, you know, standing at the crease, standing in front of that wicket. He made it work for him, and that was it was something to behold. So it was. What about the wider trends? Because we've mentioned this on the show. We've, we've certainly paid attention to the fact that test matches seem to be getting shorter. They seem to be finishing earlier. A lot now are finishing inside four days. There are far fewer draws in test matches and in test series than we used to see in the part. Has the advent of T20, and of course it has to some extent, played a role in shortening test matches is that why we get far fewer draws these days i put that question to david yeah i i have to say yes uh and also there's that much cricket that the guys want to get the game over and done with earlier <laughs> but look i think it's just the way that the wickets are produced when you've got world-class players um when you've got what coming up against a world-class attack um on a green wicket it's obviously going to be challenging same thing likewise when you've got a flat wicket there's going to be high totals and you know, you put, a, you, you put a bit of pressure on the opposition where you've got to bat long periods of time. Sometimes batters feel like they have to go out there and 
um, get on with it. And you don't really have to do that. So, um, yeah, I think the game's changing that way and uh, it probably has a lot to do with T20 format. Yeah, it's it's kind of every, everything's a little bit accelerated. <laughs> well, you can take that answer. Or you can take the one that I deduced from all of that. Players just want to get on the golf course that little bit quicker, <laughs> judging from what David Warner said. Well, he's certainly been a poster boy for playing a lot of golf, that's for sure, in his downtime. But looking ahead, I mean, it was interesting to get his thoughts on because the future of cricket is very uncertain. These, these biosecure bubbles, Owen Morgan himself has yeah. cast a lot of doubt on them. Australia, of course, uh, are due to host India for their traditional summer test series. But with this coronavirus situation evolving all the time, those plans for that series are, are not set in yeah, stone by any means. Yeah, they are. Um, so with the Australian team kind of undergoing a bit of a mini transition of its own, we've seen a few names creep into their lineup. How is David approaching these uncertain times at the age of 33 on and off the pitch? Yeah, look, that's a very good question. And there's obviously a couple of answers to, to that is, one, and the, the most important thing is working out how we can uh, obviously get a, get a vaccine for this virus and make sure that everyone is uh, safe and sound and um, people are able to get on with their lives and, and do their everyday duty um, and work and, and be able to have the luxury to travel. Um, we're obviously in, a, in an industry where we play sport and we're capable of doing this behind closed doors, but it takes a lot of time and effort and, and money to, to produce these things and we're grateful for that. But the next 12 months is obviously unprecedented as well. Um, we don't know what's going to happen. But the thing moving forward is hopefully we can keep putting smiles on people's faces and, um, you know, just keep delivering um, what we do. And that's producing good cricket. Obviously got a World Cup coming up in India at the end of next year. Um, obviously that's the unknown. This summer's the unknown as well if we're going to be in a strict bio bubble. Um, you know, obviously we've got India coming out. So we have to obviously, you know, be make, making sure that we're primed and ready mentally to take on them because they're a world-class team. Then we move on from there going to uh, South Africa as well. So, um, you know, there's a lot on in the next 12 months out of our hands, of course, but all we can control is how we go out in the middle and play the best cricket we can for, um, for our country. And that must be difficult because I think when results are so uncertain in the world of sport, athletes want other things to be certain. They don't mm. want other uncertain things. No. Because your result is always yeah. the big unknown, isn't it? And if you've got fixtures, if you've got family plans, if you've got venues, if you've got timelines and all the kind of dates and that kind of thing, that, that the organisation, the logistical aspect of it, if all of that is up in the air, it must be quite an unsettling Absolutely. way to think and, about the future. You, know, you pointed out earlier, these sportsmen and women, they are human beings at the end of the day. And like an awful lot of people, certainly my friends are questioning career choices, life decisions that they've made. This is this pandemic has, has crystallised that and made them look a little, scrutinise their lives a little bit more. That will be the case for these sportsmen and women as well. And for some, Rob, not all, and I'm not for one second saying that this is the case of David Warner, but some will be thinking, right now, is it all worth it, this biosecure you know, bubbles? And for some, they'll be like, nope, I'm, I'm kind of done with it until we get a semblance of normality back. And right now, it's not normal. No. What they're doing is not normal. No fans in cricket stadiums to and from their you know, biosecure hotels to the training grounds to the stadiums. That is not for the long term. That is a short term fix. And if it is going to creep into 2021, yeah, I do wonder. It does make me ponder that how many of these athletes are in a place where they'll say, not for me right now. What's yeah. the space on and that? And then you trade in your career. It's going to be one to definitely keep a close eye on in the future. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com.
or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.